0: Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm today's host George Smith and I'm delighted to say that I'm joining my colleagues Samuel Luckhurst and Tyrone Marshall this Monday lunchtime. First of all, Samuel, how are you?
1: Yeah, very well. Refreshed after a long journey on Saturday, but uh, that's that's the last and the longest of the, the away days for the season now done with.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, Ty, how are things at your end?
2: Yes, good, thank you, good. Glad to be uh, back from, from Bournemouth in one piece. I'm glad we made it there on time, actually, given the, the journey of, of one of our colleagues going down to uh, to Bournemouth. We took the scenic route through the Staten and it turned out there was a reason we were taking the uh, taking the scenic <laughs> route. Oh, well,
0: at least in the end, though, you got there and did see another United victory. They uh, won 1-0, of course, on Saturday afternoon. Casemiro's early goal. Recording a second straight win, which has all but sealed the top four finish in a place back in the Champions League for next season. They need just a point from their final two games to get themselves over the line. And I think we can all agree that the job is pretty much done. It would take something quite remarkable for them to miss out from here. Uh, Liverpool, of course, dropped points on, on Saturday at the, uh, at the same time, which was a rarity. Both teams kicking off at three o'clock on a Saturday. They were held by Aston Villa to a draw. Um, Samuel Ty, obviously you were both there at the vitality on Saturday afternoon. Samuel, first of all, what did you make to the, to the game as a whole?
1: Well, it, I suppose uh, the two well United's away record this season it was bookended by similar performances, similar results in the, the start of the season. It was a one nil away at Southampton in that that rather unpopular green kit, given that it was only the fourth time they. They, they played in it uh, at Bournemouth at the weekend. And again, they, United were just you know seeing out a 1-0 win, uh, grip prevailing over Guile. In fairness, the, the first 20-odd minutes, United were very dominant. And when they got that early goal, you, you did wonder whether they would go in for the kill now against a team that had made... I, th- I think five changes overall, so half the outfielders have changed. And assured of safety, United really should have been ramming home their superiority um, and their dominance, and they didn't. And in the end, De Gea has to make a few good saves, uh, particularly the one from Keith Moore, right, right towards the end. I think there was, I think that was the eighty-fifth minute. So that was the most important of the three by far and this is a season where we've become accustomed to watching united grind it out away from home uh, at every ground apart from the city ground that's the only place where they seem to have had a pretty comfortable time of it and won uh, with i think well they they won 2-0 and 3-0 in, in the the league and the cup games and they got, I think they got the first goal in in the in, in the league game before half-time as well. But it seems like every other away win they've had this season, there has to have been an element of patience or uh, you know hanging on at times as well. And most of those wins have come against bottom half teams. But really, since the the back to back defeats against Brighton and West Ham, it's all been about getting points on the board, and the performance has come secondary to the results. And in the last two games a 2-0 win, a 1-0 win, That's United fans would have taken that at this stage of the season uh, to ensure that they get Champions League football for next season and it seems like it's inevitable now that that Champions League anthem will be ringing around Old Trafford again.
0: Yeah, it certainly does. It would take, as I said in the intro, quite a collapse from here for it to, not to happen Ty, obviously, Samuel's mentioned there that it was quite a gritty game where you know one goal was enough to get the job done. I think it was the 12th time this season where United have won by one-goal margin, either at home or away. And again, it's uh, it's a pattern emerging where it, they are having to rely on their goalkeeper and the defenders to, to kind of see the job through. We know that they're not scoring bucket loads of goals in the league. And I think it was a similar case on Saturday and Samuel's player ratings reflected that with the attackers not really doing what's expected of them, but the defenders did.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've got to be honest. It was. It felt like an entirely forgettable game. I think by the time we completed the drive home, we had basically forgotten about it. It's one of those when you look back in years to come and think about trips to Bournemouth, and you'll think one nil Casemiro. Nah. No, nothing's nothing sticking out because it it was just a bit of a a bit of a non-event of a game, really. Um, I mean, Bournemouth were. I was gonna say they were on the beach, I mean they are on the beach, aren't they? But they, you know, in, in that sunshine have achieved their job. It was very much job done for them. They didn't put up much of a fight. They you know, they had sporadic moments where they were in the game, but beyond that United always felt comfortable. But like you say, you also never thought that second goal was going to arrive and the goal scoring is is clearly the issue now. We were talking about it on the way home and they need five goals in the last two games just to even match last season's total and, and we know how disastrous last season was. Um, obviously there's been huge improvements defensively and they are clearly a better team than last season but it does show that the next area of improvement for Ten Hag and this team has to be in the final third and that's with a striker but but also with just a more cohesive attack it it didn't feel very cohesive it didn't feel very quick Um, on Saturday I think there's that front three that started the game I mean Anthony Anthony has got better as the season has, has gone on I still don't think he's excelling week in week out and he's still a little bit too too predictable. I mean, there was a moment in the second half when Vegor's played him through on goal and, um, you know, I think Samuel said to me, oh, he's in here. And I just said, he's not scoring. And <laughs> sure enough, he, he, you know, he slowed it down. He dribbled towards the corner flag. He tried to get it on his left foot and the chance had gone. And you do feel that with Anthony, that when he's in front of goal with a chance, you don't have a lot of faith that he's going to score. Sancho's lost the zip that was in his game after he came back from, from his long absence. He's, you know, he just he doesn't doesn't, convince it all at the moment. He doesn't sparkle. That player we saw at Dortmund, the, the exciting winger, you just don't really see any of it at the moment. I thought Martial was United's best attacker of the, the front three and perhaps a little unfortunate to go off. But then it, it says everything about that attack that United were far better when, when Vegorst came on and he, he did force the the keeper into a save. He linked play a lot better and he just he did make that attack look better. But... That is, you know, that's, that's the area that, that needs focus on going forward. Um, it is going forward, basically, that that needs to be looked at because there's, there's not enough goals in the team. And like I say, from from early in the second half onwards, you never really felt like they were going to go and score again and, and kill that game off.
0: Yeah, definitely. And obviously, it was the same front three that started the win over Wolves seven days earlier. And I kind of expected maybe Alejandro Gonacho would start after. Obviously, we learnt on Friday that Marcus Rashford was likely to miss out through illness. Samuel, were you at all surprised that Eric Ten Hag stuck with Jaden Sanchova and Ganacho after the way the fans were calling for him and obviously he scored against Wolves as well?
1: Not surprised because Ten Hag does have some form for easing certain players back in after a lengthy absence, even with Lissandro Martinez coming back from the World Cup and going off to Argentina to, to celebrate Argentina's World Cup win. He didn't come back into the team immediately. There, there was a bit of a delay there and he, he didn't even start in the Manchester derby in fact that was Luke Shaw and Tarron Molassio playing on the left side of defense and where Garnaccio was out for quite a long period I I my gut instinct was that Ten Hag would stick with Sancho but obviously that wasn't the that, that wouldn't have been the popular call given how popular Garnaccio was at Old Trafford just just warming up before he came on and, and scored against wolves but the the issue with Sancho is that when when he does start these games and there's a competitor on the bench who we saw it in Seville when Rashford was on the bench, and it's you know he's on borrowed time, Sancho because he doesn't seem to have the confidence or the belief that with someone who is really better equipped to be starting that role and he's a bit fortunate to be starting in that role you don't have he doesn't have that belief that he's going to perform and that he's going to see out of the game that he's going to have an impact on the game. There are at least two occasions at Bournemouth in the first half where he was playing in front of the United supporters as well, where the United fans were actually having to urge him to be more direct, be more penetrative with the ball um, and, and start sprinting. And I, I've, I've, That's been a bugbear with Sancho for quite some time. I, I don't understand why. He, when he gets the ball, he wants to slow the pace down. There's no method to it. He didn't do that in Dortmund, I don't think, from from whenever, uh, whenever I watched him on the rare occasion there. In, in Dortmund, he was all about being prompt, being proactive, and having that that purpose in his play and that's just lacking at United and so that and also he's 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 there's competition there to try and possibly get an FA Cup final spot as well but he doesn't have that belief and I wrote some time ago that Ten Hag was getting impatient with him and he was actually asked about Sancho's form on Friday and he he fudged the answer really he said he played quite well against Wolves I, I don't think Ten Hag believes that and i don't think anybody you know believes ten hag when he says that either and certainly ahead of the two games this week i can't i can't see sancho starting against chelsea certainly that's that's the time for a change uh, whether or not rashford is is available for that one and by the time that fulham game comes along united should have the points banked to have qualified for the champions league and then you're looking at which players need a breather, which players need a bit more um, playing time ahead of the FA Cup final. And I think to, to start Sancho in that game might be uh, might be a bit of a waste, given that they, they probably could do with giving Garnacho a start so that he's really fully up to speed ahead of that game against City, whether he starts it or, or, or is, is on the bench.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting that because I think a lot of people will debate, obviously, will Rashford start on the left against City, will he play through the middle with Gernaccio on the left? There's obviously a lot of moving parts that, you know, can be debated nearer the time. But, obviously, the other big headline from the Premier League over the weekend was, of course, City wrapping up the title, which was, you know, to be expected after the way Arsenal had folded in the last few weeks. But, obviously, now United are under a little bit of pressure to try and stop this historic treble. Mm -hmm. Obviously, City have got United a week on Saturday and then it's into Milan the following Saturday in the Champions League final. I suppose the big question is, can United do it? It's going to be a tall order, isn't it?
2: It is going to be a tall order. Um, I mean, they have shown they can do it, I guess, by winning at Old Trafford back in January. But that that did come at a point when City were probably at their their lowest ebb of the season. It was a few days after they'd lost to Southampton in the, the Carabao Cup. And who'd have thought we might have Nathan Jones standing between City winning a quadruple come the end of this season. Um, it, you know City are a far superior team, I think, now to the one that United beat then, but United did show they, they can do it. The The concern would be that these they look to be two teams going in opposite directions at the moment in terms of the, the narrative of this season. City are trending upwards. They're playing as well as they have all season. They look as settled as they have all season. They look fitter than they have all season. United look like the air is going out of of their season. Basically, they're you know they they're maybe not stumbling over the line, but they're not they're not playing particularly convincingly. They they don't look as as creative and as good as they did um, back in in January and February. Um, so I think that that they would need to find something before the cup final to to stand a chance. The you know the the possibility is that there's going to be nerves for City for sure. I think City will be more nervous than United and Inter Milan in, in those games because of the, the prize for them. And United may be able to, to capitalise on that. Inter Milan might might be able to, might be able to drag City into a, a war of attrition, basically, if they start nervously. But, you know, on on, on recent evidence, the, the performances of United and City over the last, what, month, maybe six weeks, you would look at it and say, City are our favourites for, for that cup final, for for sure. But it it, it is a one-off game, you never you know you never know what what happened as i said last week to to someone else football is always a little bit hostage to fortune because it's it's a low scoring sport a team can win 1-0 and have one shot on goal and the other the team has has 20 shots on goal it, it is possible the best team doesn't always win every game of football so there is a possibility but you know i think it's a, it's a huge leap of faith to, for anyone to say with any confidence at the moment that they think united will win that cup final
0: yeah, definitely. I think when you look at the fact United have only scored three goals in their last four league games, compared to the way City, for instance, blew Madrid away last week by scoring four, it's it's certainly going to be a you know a tough test for Eric Ten Hag. But Samuel, just like just lastly on this, Eric Ten Hag obviously as as Ty said there, he's already got one over on Pep Guardiola this season doing it at Old Trafford. Obviously, Wembley is a it's a one-off occasion. It's a very different setting. Do you think, almost in some ways, it could possibly considered a free hit for United this one?
1: That's not a completely ridiculous outlook on it and also it, it's easy to forget that United defensively are actually pretty good and they have been this season. The club predictably made a fuss of, of De Gea winning the Golden Glove and his his performance at the weekend was, was vital. He he, he deserved his, his 8 out of 10 uh, for, for, for the importance of the saves. He should be making all of those saves but it you've, you've still got to make them, and you've still got to uh, ensure that you you get the three points. And it was a, a classic goalkeeping performance in that sense. In the on the three occasions he needed to do something, he did them faultlessly. And you've got Varane back, who has, has underpinned their their season. It was his recall against Liverpool back in August that sparked um, the resurgence from United, and he does make a huge difference when he plays there. Lindelof is possibly enjoying his best spell in the United side um, to the point that Ten Hag has abandoned the two left-footers, two right-footers, um, preference of a balanced-back four to accommodate two right-footers because Lindelof absolutely deserves to start. And Luke Shaw has somewhat quietly had a, a really good season uh, playing at centre-back or playing at left-back. Uh, wan is is a nose ahead of um, Dallow for that right-back uh, slot at the moment. He started the last three games. He's he, he's still not up to it. For going further forward, and th- there still has to be a question mark over his long term future at United. But defensively, he is he's a lot better this season than last season. Casemiro was quality at the weekend, and he's an old war horse who has has come up against Pep Guardiola teams. He was very good in the derby win in in January as well. So. Those those players are going to be absolutely vital in that cup final. And as rampant as City have been, United are one of the few teams this season that kept Haaland quiet. And you know, it, it seems like it's been more regular than it has for for a striker who's scored fifty odd goals this season. He's, he's he's spectacular. He looks like he's he was built in a the lab. He, there are times when he is unplayable. And United have have experienced both versions of ten, of of Haaland. They you know they were powerless against him when he plundered a hat trick in in October, but they shackled him really impressively at Old Trafford, and they've they've got the players to do it even without Lisandro Martinez. As I said earlier, Martinez didn't start Old Trafford in uh, in in January, and in a one-off game, sometimes you, you see it in tournaments. Players rise to a level they are never going to rise to again in their career. Because it's the it's the occasion of it, it's um the, the the significance of it. They have that. There's someone at United who, who refers to a laser focus, and it, it it is kind of that approaching it, and it does help that United will not have the Europa League final uh, to interrupt the week leading up to that cup final. I think if they did, then you'd I mean you'd probably get more United fans selling their tickets ahead of ahead of the FA Cup final, just resigned to them not laying a glove on City. But they have got they have got the quality to, to harm City. They have got the quality to do it. And from United fans' perspective, they are probably just hoping that this run of rather underwhelming form, where the performances aren't particularly good, the results have picked up in the last couple of weeks, that when it comes to Cup final day, there is that underdog spirit that Sees United over the line. We've we've seen it before in the FA Cup final. Uh, not particularly often in in the last uh, twenty years or so. I mean, the only exception would probably be when Wigan beat City ten years ago. It's difficult to recall any other underdogs doing it on Cup final day. Uh, so it's it will be a mam- it will be a mammoth test of of, of this United team's mettle, But what a way it would be to to cap the season.
0: Certainly would, and we'll, uh, of course, talk about that more next week as we uh, build up to the FA Cup final at Wembley. But do rejoin us in part two of this podcast, where we will have a look at the latest on the transfer front and off field issues. Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast for the Manchester Evening News. Um, on the transfer front, of course, everybody's aware of, of what United need to do this summer. We all know that a striker is going to be the main priority for, for Eric Ten Hag. We know that. In terms of getting players out the door this summer, that's going to be a, a big big task for what the club's got to do. Samuel, you wrote quite a few times recently that Eric Ten Hag plans to be ruthless in his decision-making. And you've done a line this morning about Nottingham Forest being keen on signing Dean Henderson on a on a permanent base. Obviously, spent the season on loan at the city ground, but has been sidelined since January with injury. Um, I think me and you have said on recent episodes of this podcast that he's one of the few sellable assets that United will have, despite that injury. But are you surprised that Forrest are going to go in for a permanent move, considering they've only really seen him for half a season?
1: No, I think he's, he's impressed enough there and endeared himself uh, enough for that to be the type of signing that... The whole, the whole club could get behind. They, they need some continuity there next season after two transfer windows where was it twenty nine players I think of, have, have joined Forest on loan and permanently. And really, one of those standout signings was was Kayla Navas. The situation they were in, they they did very very well to move for a goalkeeper that wily, but also still that agile that he can he can save them points. And he, he has done that in a number of games for Forest and that's been vital, especially with their home form, which has that's that's kept them in the Premier League. They've they've had some very impressive home results this season. And and Henderson contributed to that with with the Liverpool win back in October. And where Navas is thirty-six and and a low knee, And the alternative is wayne hennessy who frankly is just just not a very good goalkeeper um is probably not even good enough to be a number two at a premier league club i would argue then it makes infinite sense to go for a goalkeeper who's 26 who's premier league proven who's attainable and is already familiar with the settings is already familiar with the manager is familiar with the squad um there's continuity there he's a long-term option and really with with the price, I was told, that with Forest looking at a £30 million deal, it, it it's in the interests of all parties to get that deal done. I don't think Dean Henderson would turn his nose up at going to Nottingham Forest. It means that he's playing in the Premier League. He's absolutely, you know, he's, his place is secure going into the season, even though he's recovering from surgery on a thigh strain that is going to keep him out for, for quite a while um, in, in, in the upcoming months that he's he's staying at a club where he he is valued and he knows he's going to be starting for them when he recovers, which was what he thought was the situation he was in at United, only he underestimated um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's uh, decision-making or or lack of decision-making. And where it's the European Championship next year, he's playing at the level he needs and wants to be playing at to give him a decent shot of getting back into the England squad uh, because I think it's still arguable that on his day he is the he's the best of those four English goalkeepers I think he's possibly got the most complete skill set but he's had um, unfortunately for him a few really bad setbacks in recent years even at the Euros a couple of years ago he had to withdraw from the squad because of a, I think it was a groin injury then he got covid and that meant he missed all of pre-season for united and also killed his chance it seems of becoming the club's number one and then he's had this thigh strain that has ruled him out since I think he, the last time he played was January the 14th so he's he'll have been out for the best part of probably seven or eight months by the time he's available to play a competitive game again so really this is a chance for stability in his career uh that I, I think he's also such a such as. um strong personality that he is prepared to take the plunge to say, yeah, I'll leave United. He doesn't want to stay in his comfort zone. He's even said that before. So you have to commend him for being that bullish um, to, you know, just put United in the past. It's not like he, I think what possibly helps him is that, although he's a United Academy graduate, he's he's not from Greater Manchester. He's from, he's from Whitehaven. He's from Cumbria way. So th- that emotional attachment is possibly not, it, it they, they it possibly doesn't pull on the heartstrings as much as it would do for an academy graduate who's from Salford or, or Withenshaw, I suppose. And as I said, as you said, United they very, very rarely get good fees for players and Dean Henderson is a player that they should be getting a really good fee for. And thirty million pounds for a twenty six year old backup goalkeeper who has not got many England caps and has been injured since January. If if you you can't muck around with that, you've just got to ensure that you get the fee for it and you bank it and then you reinvest it in the squad. Because, as as we've said before, United are of the opinion that De Gea is getting a new contract. So, just going off that alone, you have to sell Henderson. I don't entirely agree with with that approach. I think it, they they, I think it's worth. It would have been a worthy approach to tell De Gea that. Thank you for your service. You've been a great player for the club, but we're not giving you a new contract. And then just kind of go with Dean Henderson to see if he can cut it over a season. And if he can, great. You're saving money. If he can't, then you sign a new goalkeeper next year. But I think it's pretty clear that that is not going to happen.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems the case. And Samuel, you've mentioned there about Dean Henderson's bullish character and, you know, being very determined. And I actually remember in pre-season when he completed that move to Forest last summer, he actually said if he could play in any fixture, it would be the two against United this season, which obviously part of his loan agreement meant that wasn't possible. But that was what he wanted to do. And Ty, I think, you know, Samuel summed it up nicely there about Dean Henderson's future and, you know, the knock-on effect it's likely to have for David De Gea keeping his spot. But I think with obviously what's gone off with Dean Henderson in the last couple of years, with obviously Solshaw making a false promise to him, I think it just makes sense for United and Henderson to go the separate ways, doesn't it? This summer,
2: yeah, it does. You know, he he said some pretty balshy things when he moved to Forest last year at the at the media day there. Um, you know, I think he's right to feel aggrieved about the way things panned out at United. Uh, I, you know, I think there's as much of it where it's, it's his misfortune as as being, um, you know, as feeling mistreated and, and lied to De Gea did start that season really well the reality is De Gea wouldn't have, Gea wouldn't have been in goal had Henderson not got Covid but when he did end up in goal he did play really well and Solskjaer probably felt he was kind of stuck with what decision to make really because he'd made the promise to Henderson yet De Gea didn't deserve to be dropped so I think there's there's huge amount of misfortune here for, for Henderson the way things have panned out for him at United it would still be nice to see him get get one more chance but you know I think that, that that's clearly gone um if they do sell him then they need they need another keeper, you would think. it's a case, I guess, of whether they'd like to sign someone young and, and maybe phase the hair out or whether they sign someone who really can challenge for him. But it does, you know, it does make infinite sense and, and you mentioned there he's one of the few sellable assets. We know United need to to sell, um, to raise funds this year whoever they sign as a striker is going to eat, eat into the vast majority of their transfer budget. So to raise 30 million by selling Henderson, you know, they could they could potentially sell McTominay and Maguire say, and get close to raising a hundred million, which they can reinvest. And that might buy you a right back and another goalkeeper. Um, so, you know, they need, they need to be sort of open to all possibilities. I know, um, like we say, Henderson, if he's going to be number two again, you may as well sell him because he he won't take that. Maguire, I think it's it's clear for all to see now that it's in the interest of both parties to go. McTominay might be someone that Ten Hag doesn't want to sell, but he is a, a sellable asset. You're not going to bring much money in for for Eric Bayou or Alex Alex Teles, so you you've got to be open to the possibility of selling players you don't really want to 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 raise uh to raise a bit of money. And I think and if you get thirty million for Henderson, yeah, I think it's a, a deal that makes sense for all parties.
0: Yeah, certainly, certainly, you know, one of the most sellable assets, as we've said there. And obviously, Champions League football does look assured for next season now, which means obviously United are going to be able to attract a better standard of player. And Ty, you did the story last night with some quotes from Casemiro talking about Eric Ten Hag's hunger for winning and how it surprised a lot of the players in the squad. That surely is only going to attract players to United, you know, this coming summer. And Eric Ten Hag, I think he said two or three weeks ago that a lot of targets are already keen to to come to United at that point, it maybe felt like he jumped the gun a little bit too early when they lost at Brighton and then at West Ham, but now obviously they do look, you know, assured of that top four spot. I think Casemiro's admission ultimately is going to sell a lot to these players that United are a club now moving in the right direction again.
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of the players have spoken positively about Ten Hag this season. Privately, you hear the, the same sort of thing. There's, you know, there's players. I know for a the fact there's players in that squad who aren't getting a game who rate him very highly and say he's he's you know he does tell you why you're not playing and you can see from what he's doing on the training ground that he is a very good coach um he is you know he is clearly the manager of that squad he is clearly it's probably not been the case at united for a long time but he's clearly the most important person certainly on the footballing side of that business maybe the most important person at the club and that's what you would expect from a manager there's there's always an attraction to play for united you only have to look at casemiro last summer he was happy to swap the champions league for the europa league for a season for that that new challenge but he was you know he was very interesting on on ten Hag and um you know it was interesting what he had to say he, he conducted the interview in spanish actually so i only really saw what he said when it was uh when it was translated and, and written down for us but um you know maybe doing it in his mother tongue as well brought out a bit more honesty because the the stuff about you know the the squad talking amongst themselves about how heavy was the word i think he used ten is with his demands kind of tallies with what you hear um privately as well from from what he's like and quite a few people now, quite a few players have mentioned this ambitious streak of his and this this desperation to win that that Ten Hag is and that Ten Hag has. And Casemiro, you know, I think in the space of maybe two paragraphs in the answer about Ten Hag, I think he called him ambitious three times, maybe four times. So it does, you know, it does show that he's clearly a manager who's got the respect of the entire the entire dressing room, even the players who aren't playing and that that definitely helps. And there is You know, there is a sense now it took a bit of a leap of faith for someone like Casemiro to come last year. Now you'd think players would look at it and think, right, that's a club on the right track. They've got a settled manager who isn't going anywhere, who we know has been successful in his first season. So they definitely, you know, they do look a more sellable asset to to players if if anyone had any doubts. They they do look like a a club going in the right direction with a, a good manager in charge.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it's no doubt going to mean that Frankie de Jong's name is going to crop up again very soon on a regular basis. So we're all going to be ready for that. And Samuel, last week you did a story on Eric Ten Hag obviously being keen on a, another midfielder as well as a striker as a priority in the summer. Uh, Frankie de Jong came out over the weekend and said that he was happy to stay at Barcelona potentially for the rest of his career. How likely is it, do you think, that United will renew that interest and have a real second attempt at getting Frankie de Jong to Old Trafford this summer?
1: um i i what i would say is i think it's unlikely that they will sign Frankie Dion because although he, i mean he said this last year and that was my gut well, when i was first told that the, the interest from united was concrete i did think why they're going for a player who's just completely unattainable who when he joined barcelona you you saw you could see him essentially seeing out his career at the club and that remains the case that's not a surprise his preference would always be to stay at barcelona rather than go to manchester united privately he was prepared to do that last year because i don't think he appreciated the way he's being treated by barcelona or the fact that they they were open to selling him that they did accept a fee from united uh, which uh, n- normally if you accept a fee from a club for a player the player is packing his bags and he's on his way but where barcelona's finances are just i mean you could you could write a book on um, how, how how confusing they are how um how how uncertain they are and the, the the mess that is still yet to be cleaned up there um regarding the finances and that's always a red flag when when approaching barcelona to sign such a a good player like de Jong. so i think in in ten hags mind Tenha uh, sorry De Jong is like the best best in class as a midfielder of the type that he wants at United but I just don't think he's uh, I don't think he's going to be attainable again this summer I'd be, you know, i from from having watched him in though particularly in the old Trafford game where I thought he was in, in the first half I thought he was excellent and he was probably Barcelona's best player on the night it would be it'd be great to see him in the Premier League you you want to see the best players in the world in front of you on a on a weekly basis, that's one of the treats of of watching such a big club who attract big names and who who attract such quality footballers. You you want to watch, you want to watch good football and you want to watch some of the best. And that's been the case um, watching Casemiro this season, and also Christian Eriksen, names that we'd heard of, and then someone like Lisandro Martinez, who not many of us I think would have been aware of before um, before the Ten Hag interest came in. He's been terrific to watch as well this season. But with De Jong, it's, there's, I mean, there are so many obstacles to, to doing a potential deal there. And also Barcelona have just let Sergio Busquets go. De Jong has started the majority of La Liga matches he's been available for under Xavi this season. You, you look at Xavi as a coach and Frankie De Jong and the way the way Xavi played, the way Frankie De Jong played, they are kindred spirits. It, it would be remiss of Barcelona to just you know write off Diong, but they were receptive to selling him last year they are going to have to sell some players this year and in some ways deong is probably the most sellable asset in that if they really do need the money there is a club that would pay top dollar to sign him and they they were in you know very long discussions last year about it so I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility, but I just think there are so many hurdles there still that it still seems quite fanciful. And, and De Jong is never, ever going to publicly say, I want to sign for Man United. He would only say that if he was at Carrington in the press room signing his papers and and wearing a Man United shirt, how, how delighted he was to be at the club. He is going to... Because with, with the wage deferral, you would imagine that that's that's an issue if if he starts saying he wants to play for man united there's probably something in the small print that suggests that he's not entitled to to those uh, those wages if he's flirting with another club so uh, we could all do without another summer of of, of franky de jong uh, i think it's safe to say
0: yeah another 100 day plus saga hopefully not on its way but we'll see but uh, that's all for part 2 of this Manchester's Red podcast do rejoin us in a moment for part 3 and our preview ahead of Thursday night's clash with Chelsea Welcome back to part three of this Manchester is Red podcast. As I said a few moments ago, Chelsea up next for Manchester United at Old Trafford on Thursday night, which is of course a game in hand that's taken a while to come around. Ty, obviously, we, we've spoken about what United need. They need one more point from those uh, two remaining games to get the job done. Chelsea, of course, have been a have been a mess this season. I think that's the right, you know, the only word that we can use to describe them. You can never say never in football. But surely Thursday night is the night United officially get that job done in their Champions League place, rubber stamp.
2: Yeah, you would certainly think so. Um, it, it's hard to see Chelsea picking up a result. I mean, United even at even at times where they've they've gone through troughs and rough patches this year, United have always been pretty reliable at, at Old Trafford. Um, one one defeat in the league on the first day of the season, that loss to Real Sociedad. Beyond that, they've been pretty faultless in in, the, in, in league and cup, really at, at Old Trafford. So their home form has been excellent. Um, it is hard to see that, that Chelsea team have got nothing left to play for really. And they don't, they don't strike you as the kind of characters who have nothing left to play for are going to give their all at the moment. Um, like we say, the squad's a total mess. Lampard can't decide what team to pick from one week to the next. It's constant chopping and changing. Um, you know, watch watched most of the game at the Etihad yesterday and although they only lost one nil, there was times where they just drifted through it. I mean, it, it f- for a lot of the first half it felt like a testimonial almost they just they didn't they didn't lay a glove on, C- on City they didn't even try to lay a glove on City there was no intent to press it was all just a bit half-hearted it was like they eventually realized that this was City who themselves were were cruising through the game and they had a bit of a go and, and arguably unlucky not to score in the end but you know against the motivated United team who are going to be trying to to get the win and and seal, seal the deal when it comes to Europe, You just, you, it's hard to see how they don't get that result. I mean, you look back to the trip, the United had to Stamford Bridge in October, and that was a that was a fairly even game at the time. United started really well, and Potter made a change, and, and it, it balanced itself out, and in the end, you felt a draw was probably about right. Casemiro got that late equaliser, but since then, the teams have just gone in, in different directions, really, and like we say, Chelsea do look a mess. I think the only thing that might change... Their approach this week is if if confirmation came that Pochettino would had got the job, um, obviously not going to take charge of the game, but it might might be a bit of a reminder to some of those players that there is a new manager coming in. They need to impress, but you know it's an open secret at the moment, and they still don't look particularly particularly bothered by the prospect. So yeah, it, you know it's hard to see with the way United have been playing at home how they don't at least get get a point to, to make sure of top four.
0: Yeah, definitely. And United, obviously, both of their last two games are at home. Fulham to come on Sunday on the final day of the season. If United were to win these last two games, they'd end the season with 48 points one at home, which would actually be the highest points tally since their final season under Sir Alex Ferguson. So, there is something, you know, a little bit of a statistical opportunity for Eric Ten Hag to achieve something here. Samuel, we've mentioned about the goal-scoring issues. United have been, you know, defensively perfect at Old Trafford this season. they only conceded eight times. The biggest home win in the league, though, is only 3-0. Do you think there's a, you know, maybe if they get the job done relatively early on in this game on Thursday night, that they might finally loosen the shackles a bit and maybe give the fans something to shout about?
1: I think they'll give them something to shout about and that they should ensure that it's a successful season. And it it's, although there's another home game on the Sunday, it's it's a pretty, it should be a pretty good send off ahead of going to Wembley, because they, they are going to want to sustain that momentum but as you said they they don't win uh, they don't get heavy wins they've only scored four goals in in two games this season and those two were in the league cup against villa and, and the europa league against real betis it's this is not the season for for vintage united i think in their in their however many five point plan however many point plan is to to become a, a genuine force again this is a season about getting results getting back up the ladder Getting a, uh, a new year on the chiselled onto the honours boards win the trophy drought, which they have done, and they are almost certainly going to be finishing in the top four. So in that sense, it is job done. And if they if they win the FA Cup, then I think a, a, a very good season becomes probably a great season because of what what is riding on that game at Wembley. Uh, I I don't really see any of these games this week as United um, cutting loose. Sometimes on the final day, you see some mad mad score lines. I go back to was it Middlesbrough thumping Manchester City eight nil or eight one back in sven and Eriksson's last game. I think Stoke beat uh, Thrash Liverpool six one in Steven Gerrard's final game. Uh, Tottenham the following year at relegated Newcastle having just gone close to to winning the league. They got. Thrash five one or five nil there I think so. There's always it seems like every season there is this mad final day score because there's, there's you know players play with with abandon and there's there's nothing really riding on certain matches. Uh, but the last I think the last five games between Chelsea and United the, I think the score sequence is one 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 nil nil. That's um that's flipping it. And the last Chelsea manager to actually beat United was was Frank Lampard when he was. Uh, their permanent manager in, in the FA Cup semi-final, yet even that season, up until that game, Lampard was seen as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's patsy. United had beaten Chelsea three times, twice in the league, once in the League Cup, and two of those wins were achieved with the same tactic. It was not exactly uh, a match-up of tactical master managerial mastermind, Solskjaer and Lampard, and it's it's not a surprise that both clubs have, have moved on well and truly from, from those two tenures, but Chelsea are in, I mean, this is bound, I think this is due to be that surely their worst season since, is it 95, 96? I think they finished in the bottom half of the table and it, it, that was the summer where they started to become more of an exotic club again that they signed Di Matteo, Zola, I think Gianluca Vialli also signed that summer. So that's when this rebranding of Chelsea changed and they actually started to become one of the eminent teams in England. So uh, it's 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 pretty extraordinary what's what's happened at Chelsea. And uh, I think that the prospect of a defeat, United losing that game in midweek, it's, it's not something that anyone can, can foresee happening whatsoever.
0: No, certainly not. And Ty, I suppose these two home games that United have got, obviously getting the Champions League assured is the, the main objective. But I suppose beyond that, it's it's two games for for everybody to audition for a starting berth of the cup final, isn't
2: it? It is, yeah. You, you would think there's probably not many places up for for grabs. Maybe right back, but I think it it probably be a surprise if he doesn't go with wan in the cup final. The midfield will probably pick itself. The you know the the interesting area for the cup final is what he does with the with the attack, and I know we we've talked about Garnacho and and having an audition, and it wouldn't be a surprise if he he, he started against Fulham on the last weekend of the season, but. I'd be very surprised if Garnacho was starting the, the cup final and I thought Ten Hag's answer about him last week after his goal against Wolves was, was really insightful actually, there's a lot of detail in the answer and he did touch on kind of the areas he needs to improve about the, the defensive side of his game really and, and knowing when to press and stuff and I just can't see him playing someone like, a player who Ten Hag thinks has to improve in that area, I can't see him playing him against Man City and I think the most likely change i think we'll see against city is fernandez playing out wide maybe fernandez on the left and anthony on the right and rashford through the middle um or even rashford on the left fernandez on the right and and martial or or Weghorst up stop front but i think the most likely um route to, to the, the most likely player to come into the cup final team basically i think is fred who's not starting at the moment um that's how I'd see it. So maybe, you know, maybe Fred will get a start against Fulham if it's if it's job done. I can't see, can't see Ten Hag making many changes for the Chelsea game, but if they get the result they need, I think the Fulham game he will and I think the one player who's probably got a a a claim to press for a cup final place this week will be Fred. Do do you think there's a yeah, danger that
1: he's that. Sorry, do, do you think there's a danger that he's already shown his hand a little bit there with the game in January that if he was to revert to it? City are kind of like they they know what's coming.
2: Yeah, possibly, possibly. I did I thought it was interesting when he spoke about Fernandez after the Villa game when he played on the right, because he played on the right both home yeah. games against Villa as well, and he'd said yeah. he'd said beforehand how Emery, Emery surprised him in the first Emory's first game in charge when they won 3 1, then played Fernandez on the right twice.
1: And Fernandez was suspended, wasn't he? he suspended was for that, suspended well for that, that game,
2: yeah. And whatever it whatever it was that Villa did that surprised Tenag. His approach since is to play to play Fernandez on the right, and he spoke about it. You know, I asked him in that press conference after the Villa game why he played on the right, and he did. You know, he said it, it's a, it's a tactical plan against specific opponents, basically that there's certain things he does on the right. I think from a defensive point of view, seemingly like the intelligence of knowing when to press and when to track certain players that that makes him um, appealing on on the right. And I guess with Villa, they don't you know they don't use a lot of width that team. I don't think they play quite narrow. Um, no, I don't so I think yeah. having Fernandez inside is is probably beneficial. And City are the same. City don't play with a lot of width, really. They'll obviously have John Stone you'd imagine, coming inside to to play in centre mid. So I guess he'd want Fernandez in the front three, maybe for the intelligence of of adding the extra player in midfield. But yeah, like you say, it does. If we if we're working that out, then I think it's fair to say that City would would probably <laughs> yeah. be yeah. probably have worked it out as well and then be coming up with plans <laughs> to stop it.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Pep Guardiola is more qualified than we are on those judgment calls. Yeah, isn't marginally. He? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. About. Just a little bit. Well, I think that's the uh, the perfect place to wrap up this uh, this episode of the Manchester is Red podcast. A big thank you, as ever, to both Samuel and Tyrone for joining me on this Monday lunchtime. Of course, it goes without saying that if you enjoyed this podcast and you would prefer to watch it as well as listen to us. We are now on YouTube as well. Just search Manchester is Red and you can subscribe to the channel as well. We'll be back later in the week, most probably on Friday, to reflect on the game with Chelsea and look ahead to the final day clash with Fulham. So make sure you join us then. And in the meantime, do take care.